podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're back with a second edition of our newly minted Ask Me Anything series, which we're calling Roll On, at least for the time being, which is essentially a twist on my usual format in which I share my thoughts on select topics and answer audience questions. But first, before we get into it... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. 
Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. Okay, so just to quickly recap, in order to be a little bit more responsive to contemporary events, and also in an effort to connect with all of you guys a little bit more substantively, I've decided to experiment a bit with the show by way of this new AMA-themed format. And the current thinking is we're going to be publishing this type of show twice a month, every other Thursday, to help guide this discussion and my thoughts. My friend Adam Skolnick, an activist, a veteran journalist, an author, and somebody who's just a great conversationalist, joins me in the co-host seat. Today, we begin with the current state of affairs on the protests and some feedback on recent podcast episodes. We also discuss the intersectionality of food insecurity and social justice and how healing our food deserts is an act of anti-racism. I should also point out that we mentioned a new documentary in the works on these subjects entitled, They're Trying to Kill Us. It's from my friend, John Lewis, who joins the podcast next week, as a matter of fact as well as Keegan Kuhn, who's the co-director behind Cowspiracy and What the Health. And the trailer for this upcoming film, which is quite powerful, just went public today and it's viewable on my Instagram. So I encourage all of you guys to check it out. In the second part of the podcast, I answer some relatively philosophical audience questions on the subjects of moving past the stories that hold us back when to remain open-minded and when to stand your ground, how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to deal with conflict, and lastly, how to decipher truth from fiction in the era of fake news. I appreciate all of you guys for tuning in. I hope you find today's discussion helpful. So let's do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We're back with another Ask Me Anything. I think we're calling this series Roll On. Is yes. that right, Adam? Roll That's what On. We're calling it. Uh, episode two of Roll On. I'm back with my buddy, Adam. Adam Skolnick, writer, journalist, activist, author, co-author of Can't Hurt Me, the epic David Goggins 
uh, memoir, probably the most successful independently published memoir ever. It's got to be right. I mean, who knows? I don't. I, I don't really know if there if there's a way to quantify that. But it's. Uh, I mean, Goggins is as those books have been selling really well. It's still um, selling like crazy, isn't it? It is. It is. It's still doing well. It's been like top twenty on uh, the Amazon charts for a year and a half now. That's insane. Yeah. What a crazy ride that's been for you. Yeah, I mean, for I, most, yes, it's been crazy. It's been, it's, uh, you know, I, I, when I first started working with David and the opportunity arose, I kind of figured it would be a great way to help some people, but I don't think you could ever have imagined. I mean, I didn't imagine yeah. it would be to this level and to have him um, self-publish and do it all the way he wanted to do it on his terms um, and to to reach this level is it's got to be close to unprecedented if it's not unprecedented. So. Is he and you working on a new book? Um, not at the moment, no. I mean, uh, he, yeah, he is, he is, he's, he is working on stuff. Okay, um, but uh, we'll see how it all manifests. I mean, he's always working on stuff, so right. he's always coming up. He, the post he just put out uh, was. Amazing! I don't know if you saw it. I haven't yesterday. seen the, the latest one, yeah, yeah, but they're yeah. super inspirational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this one is—they get like so crazy phenomenal. views too. <laughs> he follows nobody, and what does he have? Like two million people yeah, now on Instagram. Like that. Maybe, maybe more. I, I can't remember what yeah. it, what it is now. It's unbelievable. Uh, but, and yeah. for the two or three people listening or watching who are not familiar with that book, definitely pick it up. And I would highly suggest the audio book, which Adam reads, and then after every chapter you guys do kind of an informal podcast breakdown yep. version of yep. that chapter where you and David interact. Yeah, and that was, you know, that was all David's idea, invited me to read it. And then, um, but that really came out of the collaboration. You know, I was lucky because uh, for me, I had like, it was basically David Goggins on Broadway, like one man show uh, for three months where I would just talk to him and he would just go off on these incredible, I mean, he's such a master of his own story. Right. And the first time I ever heard of him was on your podcast. And, and he did that on that. And he's, that's why he's such a great podcast guest uh -huh. because he just goes. Right. Um, and so I got a chance to listen to that. And then, and, and so over the course of that several months that we were working together, um, it became clear to him that it was a great way of doing it would be to, right. for me to read it and then talk about it together. And so we were able to drill down deeper into the stories that people hadn't heard before. So it ends up being kind of a companion piece to the print book. Right. Yeah. Well, it's incredibly impactful, hey, that book. Thanks, so man. congrats on that. Thank you. Um, for those that are new or missed our first uh, edition of Roll On, <laughs> seems weird to call it that. Um, what we're gonna do here, the idea is Adam and I are gonna have a loose discussion kind of oriented around, I don't know, just whatever's top of mind um, and then drill down into listener questions. So we created a little bit of an outline today uh, and we've got some questions that we're gonna be answering. And the idea is that we're gonna make this a consistent um, uh, series on the show. Uh, probably uh, every every other Thursday. So the way that we've traditionally published is the long form interviews go up every Monday and then every other Thursday, I've been putting up episodes. Uh, and the idea behind those midweek episodes was to explore opportunities to do something a little bit different. Hence 
the Guru Multiverse series and the Coach's Corner. Um, and I think this is gonna find its place, you know, in that kind of sphere. So that's the idea. Um, maybe we can start with a little bit of feedback from our first episode, which was interesting. I think it was overwhelmingly positively received. Um, although there was a little bit of criticism oriented around the fact that the first conversation that I've had on the show regarding the protests, civil rights and Black Lives Matter was between me and, and you know, my, my, my white Jewish friend. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Interesting, and, and Interesting casting choice. Right. Like I took some heat for that. Uh, understandably so. And at the time, my thinking was, well, I've got all these other, you know, episodes chambered, long form conversations with, um, with uh, black Americans, African Americans, people of color, and those are going to be coming. But I think I, I, I probably should have put one of those up before mm -hmm. ours mm -hmm. to contextualize our conversation. My thinking was, well, this is a midweek episode. Everybody knows those are a little bit different. Right. I don't think anybody cares about that. No. <laughs> so to all of you who might have been harboring that, uh, that feedback or that notion, uh, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, that's okay. It's okay to take that kind of heat. You know, there's, I think you were getting mm -hmm. some heat from people who are not coming from a good place or from a, or even from a legitimate gripe. Place. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And, uh, but it's even okay to get the good, this kind of criticism. I mean, this is, this is the lesson, right? We need to be open and listening mm -hmm. to, uh, our friends that, uh, when they have legitimate grievances. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is what we've been talking about. This is the process. This is the process. Right? I mean, podcasting is very much an experiment in thinking out loud in real time. So I'm not gonna always get it right. You know, no. I'm, I'm endeavoring to, and I'm attempting to learn and, you know, expand my horizons and get out of my comfort zone to grapple with these really important and difficult issues. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm always going to say the right thing, you no, know? Right. So I'm aware of that and I'm willing to take that risk because this is so important. So in many ways, this is a maturation of the show, mm. a stepping into something that's a little bit, you know, askew from the typical programming, but I can't imagine um, not doing this. I mean, what is the point of having a platform uh, if you're not going to speak to the matters that are of most urgency and importance to our culture right now. Yeah, I think, and uh, it, I mean, isn't that the point of this new endeavor roll on is to be able to respond not only to what's happening around us in real time, but also to respond to comments about the show, mm -hmm. just to be able to respond to your listeners yeah, and to address their concerns, your concerns in, in a kind of formalized way. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and, and to do that, we've had to, shift our workflow a little bit. Historically, the program has been set up where I record these conversations and they may not come out for four to eight weeks, right. which is fine when you're talking about health and fitness and nutrition, which tend to be relatively evergreen subjects. But right now that doesn't work anymore. At least it doesn't work to the extent that I wanna talk about what's actually going on. So we've uh, moved things around a little bit to try to be more nimble. It's not a daily, show and it's not a news program, but I do wanna be able to be more contemporaneous with current events and mm -hmm. to be able to be uh, more connected to the audience and responsive to their direct questions to me and to be able to have an opportunity to share my thoughts on matters of interest to them. Yeah, perfect. 
You so, had some comments on on uh, sprouting on the Facebook group, didn't that's you? That's right. So for those who don't know, we started a Facebook group for the podcast. I think it's Facebook groups, Rich Roll Podcast or Rich Roll Pod. I'll put a link up into the show notes to it. Um, and it's been a really cool community. The idea there was to just create a place for people to discuss the show and their episodes, like-minded people to communicate with each other. Less about me being involved in it. I want it to be its own thing, independent of me. Um, but I post there occasionally and I check in when I can. And in the wake of the sprouting conversation with Doug Evans, the entire feed, not the entire feed, but a <laughs> lot of the posts are people sharing their sprouting experiences, which has been really cool. I shared it with Doug the other day. He was like delighted Fantastic. to see that. And I've been doing that myself. I um, ordered after having Doug on the show, I ordered a bunch of sprouting stuff online. I got a bunch of containers and some seeds. I think Sprout Man is where I got everything. That's what Doug suggested uh, is the best site to get this stuff. And I got a rack up in our kitchen and I've got maybe seven canisters going right now really? in different phases. Really? And it's been really cool. What do you got? My Well, I just got all the, it took a long time with COVID to get everything in the mail, but now, I think I'm on day three of my first like harvest. So these are about done and ready to eat. None of them have spoiled yet. And I got another rack below that I just started last night. So, so like I wanna broccoli, have like a rotation. Like different, different ones? Yeah, bro I've got broccoli, broccoli sprouts, lentil, pea. Um, Doug gave me um, a mixture that's like a protein mixture that has like chickpeas and a bunch of different stuff in oh, it. Fantastic. Um, I got a couple others, I can't remember, but it's super simple and it really doesn't cost anything. These these jars cost almost nothing. I mean, you could do it with mason jars if you want with cheesecloth on top of them. Um, and I just have a simple like dish drying rack where really? you angle them at a 45 degree angle and it's right next to the sink. So every time I go into the kitchen, I'm reminded you know two or three times a day to just rinse them out. And it's been fun, man. I, I, it's so easy. And it like, literally the seeds cost, you know, like pennies. Did you have to like lease a corner of Julie's kitchen to get this to get this approved or did she just immediately approve it? Normally she's very <laughs> proprietary about her workspace in the kitchen, but I think she was so excited that I took an interest in something culinary. Like it is the great like myth about our marriage and our work together. Uh, you know, we have all these cookbooks and all of that, but like Julie is the chef. Right. Like I I just sit there and, you know, wash the dishes afterwards. You like, approve it yeah, enthusiastically. I'm not, I'm not the culinary <laughs> genius, you know what I mean? So the fact that I was like, oh, I wanna do this. She's like, oh, wow, that's cool. She's all excited. Ooh, so, yeah, I bet. Anyway, my kids are like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. There's also yeah, my kids are all on But you fueling off salads like as a main thing for a long time, right? Like, like, like yeah. in the middle of the day, I've, I've, had many, I've had a few lunches with you and it's always been like a big salad for yeah, you. Yeah, typically, yeah. but I don't, I'm not growing those, that produce right. in my yard. No, no, no. You know? Yeah. So this is a, this is a new thing for me. Yeah, it's yeah. It's very exciting. It's very cool. I love it. So what else do we want to talk about? Um, we want to talk about what happened in Westlake. Yeah, I think you should talk about that. I mean, you sent me this thing um, this morning. Yeah, um, so just just today, yeah. news broke um, about an incident in in my backyard. We're recording in Thousand Oaks right now, and yeah. in this neighborhood, um, three individuals got busted for defacing a Black Lives Matter sign. One of whom worked for the sheriff, the other worked for the DA, and I think the other one was a private citizen. But um, and the DA guy was an assistant investigator, I right. think, with the DA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
the DA's office and the sheriff's office did respond swiftly to um, put these guys on leave, but they're on paid leave pending an investigation. So and they we'll were arrested, right? They were, I believe they were arrested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, misdemeanor citations. Yeah. Uh, and I guess this, the person who put this sign up, which is right on Westlake Boulevard, which is a heavily trafficked road out here, um, his sign had been defaced a number of times. So he put up one of those ring cameras and recorded the whole thing on video. Fantastic. So, yeah, man, you know, this stuff is still going on. It, I, I think it's, I think it speaks to the, you know, when people say there is no problem, like there is a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that things like this are happening are, are indicia that there is, you know, an underbelly, a dark underbelly of, of racist attitudes and behavior. And this is made manifest in this particular inst- instance. And, um, you know, what motivates that? Is it, is it, you know, some kind of, repressed white rage? Is it a sense of disenfranchisement? Is it just uh, patent uh, overt racism? Like, I don't know these individuals. I don't know what motivated them to do that. But the fact that somebody could do that in this moment in 2020 is upsetting in my own community. Is it resentment because they feel like there's now people hate cops because of uh, Black Lives Matter or something? I mean, um, maybe. I mean, one of these guys was worked in the D, the DA's office, not the police department. Yeah, there's sheriff. So, right. Um, you know what? I think two things. One is further evidence of, of prejudice embedded within law enforcement, um, which has been an accusation for a long time from people of color and especially black Americans. And um, it, it has been given very little notice until now. Um, you know, we, we hear it, but it hasn't hasn't sparked widespread protest in, in our lifetime until mm-hmm. now. And, uh, and this is evidence of it. This is evidence in a place in Thousand Oaks, right. in Westlake. I mean, this is- Which is, for people that don't know, an upscale suburban enclave very white. that's predominantly white. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and so, and, and just the expression Black Lives Matter has driven these people to do this. One of whom is 60 years old. Right. I mean, he's a 60 year old man going out of his way to deface something, a 60 year old man. Yeah, it's similar to the guy in DC on the bike yeah. who was trying to rip the, the, the flyers out of the little girl's hand. Oh, right. Remember that guy? And, or that seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> it's, it's like a, someone sent me something this morning of a, someone in their 60s, like that j- trying to get into a grocery store without a mask and trying to barge past somebody. Did you see that one? And he falls and he's like so furious. Like the fury of the 60 year old, White man. I mean, the only thing I can think of, this is a big problem that we have in this country. It's that we have, we have a country of adult children right. that have just not figured out how to grow <laughs> right, up right, right. and be grownups. Right. Like, like we wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior from children. Mm-hmm. You know, like if, if it was a 13 year old going out and vandalizing anything, it would be a problem in that family. Right. If it was like a 13 year old that wouldn't, wouldn't listen to the security guard at a grocery store, that 13-year-old would be reprimanded by his mom or his father right then and there. Right, when you think about what is going on in the mind of a 60-year-old man that he's gonna pull his car over, driving down Westlake Boulevard, get out and and slash a Black Lives Matter sign. Yeah, a 60-year-old man. The immaturity and the wrongheadedness of that is unbelievable. And it dovetails perfectly with 
what we were <laughs> what we were talking about earlier. Both of us had started listening to Greta Thunberg's yes. like sort of audio book, yes. I guess, yes. manifesto that she just released on Spotify. Incredible. Um, I was listening to it on the drive in and she just pulls no punches, man. You know what I mean? And to, and she speaks to this childishness of she the does. adults, right? She, she talks does. about being in the congressional dining hall mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. where she's gonna have lunch with all these congressmen. And she's looking around at all the fast food outlets and it's Dunkin' Donuts and it's this and it's that. Baskin and she's Robbins. like, I see these grown men and they're drinking their pink milkshakes and eating candy. And she's like, who are the adults? <laughs> yes. And, and these are the people creating policy. Right. And, and it's like, but there's so many places we can go with that. One is like, she, her tone on the audiobook is great. Like, like. It's very clear she thinks we're all a bunch of idiots. Right. Which we probably are. (laughs) Well, she has a clarity because she's not American. Right. So she comes to America and she sees it through a different lens. Like there's there's a distance between, you know, like, cause we're so, we can't see the forest for the trees Mm because we live here. She doesn't have that problem. And when she's talking about her road trip across America, It's very de Tocqueville. Oh yeah. Like she's got this, you know, laser view on all the problems when she's driving through the truck stops and she's seeing the oil refineries and the empty parking lots and the 16 lane highways and all of that. And her ability to kind of articulate the problematic nature of all of this from a perspective of like, how did we get here? Like we're not even beginning to address like all of these problems. You know, she described she was she was paraphrasing, like making up fake slogans for the states because oh, right. the license plate had <laughs> yeah. states, and it was North Carolina, where even the salad bars don't have vegetarian options. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I know, I know, I know. No offense, North Carolina. I love North Carolina. I know. It's it, but um, but that but that was pretty funny. De Tocqueville. You got to define De Tocqueville for people that maybe don't know who he was. So yeah, De Tocqueville yeah. wrote this book. What's it called? On America. Yeah, I forget. I it was like, like early nineteenth yeah, century yeah, yeah. visiting America. So right? a French guy comes to America. Yeah. It's I mean, on democracy, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he comes to America, and he because he's not American, he has this crystal clear, objective perspective on the democratic experiment. Yeah, and helps spread that. To France, right? right. Spread enthusiasm mm-hmm. across Europe for it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll link that up in the show notes. Meanwhile, uh, a town in Siberia above the Arctic yep. Circle just exceeded 100 degrees Fahrenheit yeah. yesterday or today. Yeah, I mean, you know, that I, was, I stopped for gas on the way here and there's a Starbucks connected to the gas station or like on the same plot. And uh, I'm listening to Greta and I'm thinking, well, she's, she, is, she is pissed off because- uh, because she's she's appalled that so few people are aware of this emergency that's going on and the policymakers. Like she has it out for the media, the policymakers, basically everybody. And um, and I'm sitting there and I, as I'm pumping my gas, I'm thinking of pumping gas into my car and watching 20 cars get in line for Starbucks drinks, probably in disposable cups mm. um, with their engines running and their air conditions on because it's a warm day here in Southern California in the Valley. Um, and she's right to be pissed off, you know, yeah. like she, she is on top of, you know, that's what is interesting. And the tone works in this, in this, uh, Spotify project, whatever it is, uh, because first of all, the writing is great. She reads it fantastic. It's riveting. Right. And the tone just 
provides more urgency. I, I, I love it. I think it's incredible. Um, and she's right on. She's still right on. And we still haven't quite woken up to it. I and mean, like you said, like today, nobody, know, I mean, do people, are people aware there's a hundred degree days in Siberia? Well, CNN's recovering it. Okay. It's, they're, they're reporting on it. The impact of that, you know, who knows? Right. You know, it's, it's kind of an astounding figure though, a hundred degrees Fahrenheit. And they're saying it's going to be above in Canada too, right? Above the Arctic Circle in Canada is next. That heat wave is going to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Usually it's 60 degrees in June above yeah. the Ar- Arctic yes, Circle. Yes, I think 68 or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, one of the other things Greta was talking about was she visited a forest and was talking with some rangers there. I can't remember exactly who. And there's been a proliferation of this beetle that has basically rendered 50% of the trees uh, you know, destined to die, which mm-hmm. is like this horrific thing that's happening because typically the winters are so cold and this, I think it was in Canada um, that this beetle yep. perishes in the winter months, yep. but because it's warmer now, the beetle's able to survive the winter and continues to eat these trees. And yep. so it's these, lo- these loops that, uh, that start to occur like this domino effect that illustrates the tipping point that we're facing right now. It's feedback loop after feedback loop. And when those mm. change, everything changes and the system changes. And what happens when these systems break down and change sometimes is things like viruses leak into the human uh, food chain. Mm. And, and, and like, so there's, a, it, it, it all is connected. We can't, it's all intersectional. That's what we're learning with race in America. That's what we're learning with science. It's all interconnected. And everything becomes a feedback loop, right? Because we're all, we are like, you we were talking about earlier, we are like an organism on the planet mm-hmm. functioning. And so we're, we're gonna be, we're, everything comes back on you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good, it's a good um, place to pivot into food insecurity and food injustice, right? Yeah. That's another, you know, kind of black mark on our culture right now where we have these pockets all across America that are deprived of healthy food and healthy options that are also economically depressed. And that creates its own feedback loop that um, produces, you know, a generation of people who are improperly nourished. They're Mm -hmm. more susceptible to chronic lifestyle illnesses. Their brains don't develop as well. Their IQ numbers go down. There's all kinds of statistics on this. And this perpetuates without any kind of you know interference on our part at a at a system level to redress this. Yeah, I mean, uh, should we should I define food deserts? I, I, yeah, I kind ahead. of went on to the Food Empowerment Project's website, which is a, a great website, a great resource for this. Um, and so what I'm reading now comes from them. Food deserts can be described as geographic areas where residents' access to affordable, healthy food options, especially fruits and vegetables, is restricted or non-existent due to the absence of grocery stores within a convenient traveling distance. So there's a report by Congress and the U.S. Department of Agriculture that 2.3 million people, 2.2% of all U.S. households, live more than a mile away from a supermarket and do not own a car. Now that is skewed because supermarkets are defined very narrowly in these reports, and they mm-hmm. can include um, convenience stores, bodegas, right? Like liquor say, stores, exactly. That have like a spare banana that right. isn't even priced until the person goes there, and it can be a different price on a given day on a given, from a given employee. Um, you know, they're mostly most commonly found, like you said, in black and brown communities, low income areas, um, and so their their choices are limited. And it's also more expensive to get, you know, it's, it's known that fruits and vegetables somehow are more expensive than high fatty processed foods. Mm-hmm. And so when you're already low income, your choices, 
you know, so for a lot of people, wellness is a choice. For some people, those choices are made for you. Yeah, it's a huge problem. I had uh, my friend John Lewis and John Sally on the podcast last week. I'm putting that episode up next. That'll be up on Monday. And one of the things that we talked about in that in that conversation is this very subject. Mm-hmm. And those guys in, well, mainly John, John Lewis, I think John Sally's on board as a consulting producer. Um, but John Lewis, AKA the badass vegan, as he's known on Instagram, partnered with Keegan Kuhn, who's the, the co-director behind What the Health and Cowspiracy. And they're hard at work on this new documentary that's now, uh, that they just retitled it. It's called, They're Trying to Kill Us. Yep. And they showed me the trailer, which should be going public this week. It might even be today. I'm not sure if, it, if it's public by the time this podcast goes up, I'll link it up in the show notes but the trailer is so powerful. And it basically takes a look at the disproportionate impact of food injustice on um, communities of color across the country and the downstream impact of that on, on repressing their ability to um, improve their lives. Mm. And it's through the lens of like hip hop and music with all kinds of interesting interviews with prominent people from that community. And the, the trailer is like insane. I sent it to you, right? Yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's incredible. very hot. I mean, it's, I can't wait for this movie. I, I wish the movie was coming out right now because it would, it would just explode. Yeah. It's so timely. It, it's, it's going to explode because whenever, mm-hmm. whenever it is, because people are ready for these kinds of, this kinds of information. You know, I think yeah. the, there's, there's more and more plant-based people in the African-American and pe- people of color community. I think that's growing. Um, athletes are the, were kind of the first people in on it, right? And seeing mm-hmm. performance and now it's just flourishing as its own kind of resistance, its own like personal choice, the way to um, combat climate change. You know, it's, it's, it's often, I think you've said it many times, it's the most profound thing you can probably do to help the planet right now on an individual level. Well, it's is, the one thing that you can do every yeah. single day, three yeah. times a day. Every time you reach for food, yeah. you're making a choice yeah. that has that kind of downstream impact. Has a big impact. I mean, just a couple of statistics. Um, between 1989 and 2005, so a little bit ago, uh, the prices of fruits and vegetables went up 75%. In that same period, processed, fat, high fatty foods, sugary foods, the cost went down 26%. So sometimes these choices are made for you, right? Like we were saying. Right. And so then- That speaks to the systemic nature of all of the this. The systemic nature. And so then when you get, when those are the options for you in order to make ends meet, you, you drift towards those foods. It seems like it's cheaper, but later you have type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, other diet related right. conditions that will uh, impact your ability to make a living um, and put you in the hospital or worse. Yeah, I mean, when you're working- two or more jobs, you got some kids at home, maybe you're a single parent, you don't have time to cook. The healthy options are not geographically available. They're perhaps priced out of your range anyway. Yep. What are you gonna do? You're gonna go to the drive-through or you're gonna hit up the bodega, you're gonna eat the processed stuff. And you know that's the reality for millions of Americans right now. Yeah. Two, and, over 2 million. And you know, Greta talks about this also in her book, like the intersection of this with the climate conversation. She talks about um, the fact that you can't talk about climate justice without addressing social justice. Like these right. are systems that are inherently interlinked. 
They are. And I think it comes back to something, I, you know, a couple of things. I think you took some heat for even getting into politics now because for a long time, like dealing with evergreen issues, it's not like you avoided political conversations. You, 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 you like all sorts of interesting intellectual discussions, but um, taking on a, a, pol- a political issue in, in real time kind of adds potency to it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but there is a connection between politics and lifestyle choices, right? I mean, isn't there? And, and what's the point of it? Like, why do we make these lifestyle choices? Um, do we make them because they make us feel better? Um, do we make them because they make us better in all sorts of other ways? Like not just feel better, but stronger, uh, live longer, um, think clear, more clearly. Uh, is it about our own enlightenment or is there, should it be linked to a more, uh, uh, a better way of living in a communal level? I think it should be. I think people act out of self-interest, Yeah. right? So yeah. the entry ramp for anybody is gonna be, how do I feel better? How do I make sure that I don't get one of these diseases? How do I keep a trim waistline? How do I not die of a heart attack like my father or my mother or my grandfather? Those are the things I think that motivate people the most. Mm-hmm. Probably the weight loss thing is the, you know, that's the thing that, you know, snags people initially. Yeah. Because talking about um, long-term gains, like, hey, you know, in 25 years, you're not gonna get diabetes and have your foot amputated, or you're not gonna suffer a stroke. Like, it's difficult to motivate people based on things that might or might not happen in the future. Right. You know, if they're overweight, then you can get an immediate result by cleaning up their diet. But even trying to appeal to the idea that they'll have more energy, that's difficult. Yeah. So then to layer on top of that, like, hey, this is the right thing to do for society. I think there's a select portion of the population that will be motivated by that, but I don't know that that's gonna capture the fascination of the average individual. And I think that's why this is such a difficult thing, especially when the processed food like hits all the pleasure centers in your brain when you eat it. And it does create this addictive response and it's difficult to change habits. And, you know, it's hard to change and I'm sympathetic to that. It's hard to change on this level Mm -hmm. and on the the bigger issues in America right now. I mean, like, So if you can't get somebody to do it for themselves, how are you gonna convince them that they should do it for the planet? And can you social engineer your way out of these problems? You know, like it's almost like from a one level, it looks like these, there's a deliberate attempt to get people to eat shitty food. But a lot of these things are, it looks that way, but there are probably a million decisions that went into this mm-hmm. uh, profiteering yeah, type it's, decisions. It's not like a Mr. Burns sitting atop, you right. know, on some throne somewhere making these nefarious decisions to impact people in, in an inequitable way. It's right. just the tectonic plates of culture shift in a and certain business, way to create in business to create these from you know, lobbying, you know, lobbying efforts on behalf of these conglomerated food companies and the farm subsidies and the way that campaign finance works, like all of these things contribute to a system that produces this kind of unhealthy result and inequity. And the only way forward is twofold. We have to deconstruct these systems, but we also, and this speaks to what, um, what Dan Buettner talks about with the blue zones, we have to create environments that are conducive to the healthy choice. Mm. If we're relying on people to make their own individual decisions when they're faced with a panoply of choices, it's not, they're not, they're not gonna, you know, that's, that's not the way forward. They're not gonna make the right choice every time. So we have to create an environments where the healthy choice is the convenient, 
uh, affordable um, and you know easy to consume option, right? From bike paths to you know healthy food that yeah. is within arm's reach and price effective based on the community. And it that has, has to, to happen that at the that has to happen at the local government level and at the federal level, at the state level, at every level. Like how we're what we're subsidizing because you're you're referring to subsidies of I'm sure corn and soy, but mostly corn, which becomes high fructose mm-hmm. corn syrup, right? And it ends up in products right. all over the place. Makes it super cheap. Yeah. Um, I had a guy very very early on on the podcast. He'd be good to bring back on this guy David Simon, and he wrote a book called Meatonomics that basically looks at the subsidy structure in the animal agriculture industry. And basically the, the, the truth is if you stripped away all the subsidies, like the average Big Mac would cost like, you know, I don't know, like, I can't remember the figure, but it was like a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. It was way more, it, what does it cost now? Two bucks or something like right, that? Yeah. It would be like $9 or something. Um, that alone would shift the landscape tremendously. Yeah, if you if you stop subsidizing the the food the the cows eat and the cows themselves, um, it would be too expensive to eat so much beef. You right? wouldn't be able to. Yeah, fast food. The whole the whole ecosystem of fast food would shift as a result of that. Amazing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I I did a story for Sierra Magazine in um, Port Country in Eastern North Carolina, and um, there, what has happened is that big conglomerates like Smithfield Foods, which is now owned by a Chinese kind of uh, um, a multinational. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of that pork that's grown in East North Carolina ends up going to China. A lot of it right. does. And so what's happened is that the the individual farmer that used to own the, the pigs and sell them to the slaughterhouse or the big company that distributed it, uh, they don't own them anymore. Mm-hmm. They uh, basically, are paid a fee to grow the the grow the pig, right. and that fee doesn't cost enough to treat the sewage. So the sewage ends up in these ponds that mm-hmm. ends, ends up getting flooded into into um, rivers. Sometimes they have to spray the they the, spray it spray it and all then over. It rains down on the local community, yep. which tends to be you know a, a, a relatively impoverished yep. you know yep. community. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, but the the uh, kicker on that is that the actual pork grower, the, the the people that own those farms, very few of them make any money. No, I know. So it yeah, ends yeah. up being, it doesn't work for anybody really. They're, except they're for the, essentially yeah. a modern day sharecropper. Yeah. And yeah. they have to procure so much debt to create these farms and they become servants to that debt and they can never transcend it. Yeah. And you know, I've had many guests on the show to, to talk about that. I mean, that's another... That's another instance or example of the systemic nature of this. You have these conglomerated animal agriculture companies that prey on these farmers uh, to, you know, basically convince them to produce at a higher level. They need to like they'll they'll give them these loans, and they're able to build these, you know, industrial CAFOs. Yep. Um, but they're always just shy of kind of being able to be profitable beyond servicing the debt. Right. Some people can make it work because they maybe own multiple CAFOs. And so they make mm-hmm. it work that way. The small margin becomes something over, over you know, if you can scatter it over six different farms they bought. But most people suffer, man. Most people can't make a living. Yeah, and, and I'm compassionate to those farmers. Oh, yeah. Who because are trying to continue the legacy of prior generations and this beautiful tradition of farming yeah. that is part and parcel of Americana. 
Yeah, I mean, they, but they, this they grew is a up very different situation, right? And 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 you know, it's funny that when I was in Eastern North Carolina, this was in September or or October 2016, there was a, a Trump rally announced. Did I ever tell you about this? No, I don't think so. And in the middle of Eastern North Carolina, pork country. Um, they dropped in like two, with two days notice, he staged a rally and they canceled the schools so that everyone could go to this thing. And I was there with some community activists and environment and the river keeper. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all heard this and all the local people told me they'd never heard of school being canceled for any reason other than like a weather reason. Um, schools were canceled so that people could go to this Trump rally. And I went wow. to this Trump rally and um but you see this division that is sown because the people who are trying to keep their lifestyle going are victim to the friends of Trump, but they are worshiping Trump or grateful for Trump. Well, that's the disconnect, right? right? The idea that that um, this administration it cares about them yeah. and their problem when in fact, everything that it's doing is at odds with their personal self-interest. And that's what that's what um, the powerful have used, been using race to um, perpetuate that lie for hundreds of years. Mm. Yeah, so bringing back to that again, um, which is good because you can't escape it. I mean, that's all. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. air we breathe right now. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Well, let's, uh, why don't we pivot into some listener email questions? Let's do it. Um, so you want me to fire them off? Yeah, why not? Okay, cool. Um, well, this is good because it kind of plays right in. How do we move past our stories? We're dealing with a story now we'd like to move past as a, as a culture, but also individually. This, this one comes from Derek McMillan. Hi, Rich. In your podcast with James Altucher, you both touched on how we move past our stories rather than continuing to be identified with who we were whether it be an addict, criminal, etc., How do you develop a positive relationship with your past without identifying with it in the present and letting it dictate who you will be in the future? Thanks. That's like the ultimate question, that's right? The, that's, yeah. We all have these stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. You know, mine can be, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an athlete. Yours could be, I'm a journalist. Yep. So those are the labels that we put, you know, there's professional labels, but there's also these more um, at times insidious stories that we quietly, privately tell ourselves about who we are and mm. what we're capable of. And I can't in many do ways, that thing. I could, yeah. I, I could never do that. You know, yeah, like, yeah, like, well, Goggins can do that, but I can't do that because right. he's like that and I'm like this. Right. Right. That's right. I do it as much as anybody. I've done it historically over my whole life. Um, and I think- it's important to understand that these stories are illusion. We fabricate them. It's like our brains wanna make sense of ourselves and our world and our past and 
our capabilities. It's like this mapping device, mm. right? And it's trying to identify patterns. There was a um, spiritual teacher that I had many years ago, and he described it like buds on a branch. Like if you take a tree branch and you see the little buds where eventually there'll be new branches, right? And mm -hmm. we, if you look at that branch like a timeline of your life, we have a tendency as human beings to identify these certain buds of things that have happened in our past and we weave them together to construct a narrative, hmm. right? So it might be uh, my father abused me or you know, I wasn't able to get into college or you know, whatever it is, right? Like there are certain instances like events that occur and we hone in on those and we create meaning around them hmm. and then we weave them together. But in truth, our life is made up of billions of decisions and events that have occurred over the course of our lifetime. And we're myopic to almost all of it, except for these little buds along the branch, right? Mm. And we make this decision based on illusion that these things are more meaningful than everything else that's happened to us. And we construct an identity around that. And I think the process of learning from that, but not identifying with it is, one of self-inquiry. I think it's a lifetime journey of deconstructing that. And it begins with mindfulness hmm. because the more that you can be present in your life, the less you are, um, the less you're shackled to that past and that past as a predictor of future behavior, hmm. right? So the most tangible tactical advice I can give to someone who's struggling with this is to begin meditating. Hmm and to try to learn how to be more present in your life. I think these stories are important to the extent that they can inform a better path forward, but detrimental to the extent that we rely on them as limiters and predictors of future behavior. Your past doesn't dictate your future, but it will if you allow it to. And I think in most people's case, that's what happens. You just say, well, because I'm this way and this thing happened to me that I can only do these things or I'm not capable of doing these other things. And freedom comes with being in the present and unshackling from that narrative, deconstructing it, like really being doing in the present, inventory. Meaning, meaning, well, the more you're present, the more you're, the more you're, re, the less reactive you are, and the and the less prone you are to just repeating some cycle. You know, that some deep groove that's like in your brain about how you behave. Because you're open to what's coming at you versus ready to defend against what's coming at you? You can, you can evaluate your circumstances more objectively yeah. rather than reacting um, impulsively to them based upon some prior, pri like when this happens, I always do this, right. right? I'm not even thinking, I just do, this is how I respond to these situations. Yeah. And understanding that that's actually a choice, but in order to, really um, embrace the fact that you have options, you need to be present to create that little buffer of time wherein you can reflect a little bit more deeply on what's happening so that the behavior that you choose to then um, uh, lean into is, is coming from a more reflective place as opposed to a, you know, like an innate response, right? And I think when you, if you if you do an inventory of your life, you know I would I would suggest people start with what are those buds on your branch? Like, 
get out a notebook and write down all of those things that you think form your identity, those, those important events in your life that you think are formative. And then I would challenge you to then find other instances in your life that, that call into question the veracity of whatever truth is that you're hanging your hat mm-hmm. on. And I would imagine that most people can find, like, I can't, you know, I'm, not, I'm not worthy of being hired for this kind of job because I, I've been fired three times in a row. Well, have you ever had a job where you didn't get fired? Like, try to, try to put truth to that lie in some regard and understand that you have the power to create a new narrative. What you decide to focus on becomes your reality. So if you can free yourself from being overly focused on those buds along that branch and those instances that create this story, you have the power to create a new story for yourself. What you decide to focus on becomes your reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, that's the headline right there, right. right? Like our emotions, sometimes we feel like, you know, there's, there's right now especially, there's this idea of, I mean, I don't even mean in, in the context of the political situation right now, I just mean in this generation and, and with so many people in therapy or whatever, you hear people saying, well, you know, everyone wants to express their feelings and their feelings become almost sacred, but not every emotion needs to be, right. <laughs> needs to be va- validated. Right. And not every emotion is valid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's you decide what emotions are valid. Right, and that's not to say that if you've suffered a certain trauma that you should pretend it didn't happen no. to you. Um, you know, if, if that's the case, that needs to be looked at, like seek out therapy, like unpack that, what's behind that? How is it holding you back? And, and you know, start to develop tools to work through that so that it no longer carries that charge and that power that is inhibiting you. What would be an example of that for you that you, where you had to move past a certain story in your life? Maybe, I mean, sobriety could be one, but it was maybe endurance sports. What was it for you that kind of like an example where you consciously moved in a different direction because you changed yeah, the yeah. story? I think I can give you two. I mean, one is where I'm still kind of very much in a story and one is where I'm, I'm actively moving past a story. And the first is, is you know addiction and alcoholism is tricky right because i i am an alcoholic and i think there's certain people who will tell you that they are they've cured themselves of alcoholism or they've transcended it and it's not for me to judge that person's experience maybe they have and if they have that's fantastic um, but i i know that i have alcoholism and that i need to treat it and that treatment involves 12-step and working with other alcoholics, et cetera. I have a whole 12-step program for dealing with this. Um, I will never like be cured of alcoholism, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that, that, that the fact that I'm an alcoholic needs to define my entire life experience. It's something that I have that I have to deal with. And my first priority as an alcoholic is to, is to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Like I'm very, I'm clear on that. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm like this single issue person. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like I do know people that, that are sober branch, that are sober alcoholics and and basically their entire life is about, you know, talking about the fact that they have alcoholism. Like alcoholism is is something that almost killed me and there's a whole story behind that um, that I still hold on to. I don't allow it to identify who I am but it's a very powerful story in the sense that it is a reminder that I 
as much as I wanna deny or ignore it, that I have a disease that would very much like me dead. Hmm. And then I have to remain persistent in my recovery to abet that internal urge inside of me that's doing push-ups the minute I stop um, uh, treating it. Staying ahead know? of it. Right, so that is a story that, that has truth to it. I don't overly identify with it, but I need to maintain the pertinence of that story in my life in order to be well. And that's mm -hmm. why when you go to like an AA meeting, people get up to the podium and they share what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And the reason that they share what it was like is a reminder to themselves as they're sharing it and to everyone else, like this is where I came from. Like this is why I do all these things now because I would very much like to just forget that I did all of those things and pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. And it's important that I'm reminded that that is, you know, fundamentally who I was and who I could return to being if I'm not vigilant. Mm. So that would be that one example of where I maintain a connection to this story for a healthy reason. Yep. Another example would be this pivot that we're making with the podcast right now. It would be very easy for me to just say, well, I'm, an, I'm this endurance athlete and I'm a vegan and I do a podcast about those issues. We're gonna talk about nutrition and how to be like an Ironman triathlete right, or right. whatever and like stay in your lane, Rich. Trust me, I'm on the receiving end of a lot of stay in your lane comments these days. <laughs> Which is weird because and your lane has always been pretty wide. There's a lot of people who, yeah. who would very much like me to go back to that lane and stay there. They want, they want okay. the triathlete podcast. Um, and that's a story that's powerful. Like I could just stay in this place of like, oh, I did five Ironmans on five Hawaiian islands and tell that story again and again and again and allow that to kind of dictate how I communicate publicly. Yeah, I'm not that interested in that. That was a while ago. Like. I'm in a different place right now where you know, I've grown. I still am an endurance athlete and I love all that stuff, but um, it's important to evolve, yeah, right? And yeah. we're trying to evolve the podcast a yeah. little bit right now by doing what we're doing right now. And I don't want to allow that story of who I was to dictate what I have to be in the future. That story is powerful and I can leverage it um, as, as a way of reminding me that I'm capable of putting anything I put my mind to. Yeah. Because I've done some hard things. I know that I'm capable of more than um, that other old story tells me, which is that, you know, uh, you know, I'm not good and I'm an imposter syndrome. I know there's another question about that that we can get into. Yep. Um, so I use those stories for the benefit that they can give me. But I don't try to I don't allow them to hinder me from growth. If that makes sense. Yeah, do you think that answers this question? It totally makes sense. I think it does. Um, you know, the the idea that um, we should be focused on not what we did, but where we're going not not where we've been, but where we're going. Um, but the reason I think people love that story also is because you know the story of your rich role, the endurance athlete is because to so many of your listeners, they, they would like to get to the point where they have kind of some sort of physical mastery or get mm -hmm. better. And because it's interesting, would you be at the place you are now if you hadn't gone through the crucible of, of, of ultra, which allowed no. you to see yourself? Like we talk, you talk about meditation. Um, I don't know if you meditate daily or not, but um, comparing that to what you learn about yourself in an ultra, it, it must be, those are kind of 
they're not just buds on the branch. They're kind of- They're formative experiences. Yeah, they're like, uh, what do you, like, um, I'm spacing on the word in, in India, like a yoga, like where people come, an ashram. They're kind of like the mm. ashram of the mind in a mm-hmm. way and body. Yeah, I mean, I've always, and I'm happy to talk about all those things yeah. because I want everybody to have their version of that experience that I had for myself because yeah. it was so formative. So endurance sports will always remain you know, a heart place on this show. Like I love talking to endurance athletes and exploring the teachings of that pursuit, right? Um, but I would also say that I got into an endurance sports to learn more about myself, mm. not to just become an endurance athlete. It. it wasn't about podiums and winning races and all of that. And also it wasn't about you know, being a competitive athlete for the rest of my life. Like I wanted to more deeply connect with who I, who I am so that I could be more authentic in my expression of myself. Mm. And as a result of having that experience, I learned a lot about myself and I'm committed to continually growing and evolving rather than just doing this one thing, staying in my lane and you know, pleasing a certain number of people. And because it, what's the point if you're not gonna continue to get outside of your comfort zone, challenge yourself and grow? And the point of pushing the comfort zone is, is to remind yourself or learn the lesson over and over again that I can I can be more than I thought I was right mm-hmm. I can do I can I there is there is more to me and that empowers the ability to transcend those stories that hold you back exactly so it's like a feedback loop right it's a, yeah it's it. a positive feedback <laughs> it's loop. a positive feedback yeah. loop uh, and and that plays into I don't know you know um, Angela Davis legendary uh, Black Panther and mm-hmm. an activist for uh, you know decades. Um, I saw a quote from her this week and it was something like, I, I constantly, I, I can be an activist because I'm always, because um, I'm positive we are going to get there. I'm positive it's going to change. Um, there is- uh, An optimism. An optimism to it, um, knowing that it will happen. Mm. And, and I think that there's a parallel here as well. Moving past the story, you can move past the story when you know there's another place to go. Right. and. That begins just to cap it off and we'll move on to the next story. Like that begins with mindfulness practices, but Mm. it also, I would say a close cousin to that is commit yourself to doing something that that contravenes whatever that story is. Mm. Even if it's a tiny, small win, Mm. you know, create that little goal that would um, put into question the veracity of whatever story you're telling yourself. And with that small win, you can then build on it and ultimately, you know, crater the sandcastle of that imaginary story that you've been telling yourself your whole life that's holding you back. I love that. So make that goal and move past it. Um, okay, so there's a certain level of being an open-minded person to, to doing all of that, to staying open to some other possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so this comes from uh, Abby Jenkins. And kind of the bigger question is, when do you remain open-minded? And when do you stand your ground? Um, And this is what Abby said. I struggle with the two contradictory notions of remaining open-minded and ever-growing versus standing up for yourself with beliefs and opinions. It's hard for me to reconcile the two. And I'd love to know your thoughts on social media. Uh, I guess, would life be simpler without it? I I don't really understand the end of it, but I think the real question is between those two, uh, open-mindedness versus standing your ground. I don't see them as necessarily 
contradictory. Mm. I think if you're, if you're, uh, well, first of all, let's start with open-mindedness. Yeah. Now more than ever, super important to be open-minded. I think in order to be open-minded, you have to have a, a healthy dose of humility, right? Yeah. It means setting aside whatever preconceived idea you have about something so that you can enter a conversation or read an article or watch a documentary from an, a more objective point of view um, to understand that you know, your worldview or whatever it is you're holding onto is, can be challenged. Uh, does require some humility, right? Mm -hmm. Like we all like have our idea of what the world is, right? And when that's challenged, can you get into a place of openness rather than defensiveness? Mm. And that's difficult. You know, it's very difficult. And right now when everything is so heightened, you know, we're seeing people clench down, doubling down on their worldview or their idea of what's right and what's not right. Um, so again, humility is important for that in order to be open-minded. I think reading is super important. Um, you know, read as much as you can from as many sources as you possibly can. You can't have conviction about a particular issue unless you're well-read and well-versed on it, yeah. right? And I think um, standing up for yourself with beliefs and opinions requires that you have self-awareness, self-understanding and conviction on a certain idea or point of view, right? So when you can confidently say that you've educated yourself on something, you've checked in with your value system and you think something is right, then I think it's totally appropriate to stand up for what you believe in. You can still remain open to other ideas, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't or are not allowed to speak your mind and your truth. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think it does. And by the way, Abby, I have to apologize. I was I, I was reading the end of another question. Oh no. <laughs> it's just hard for me to reconcile the two. And I'd love to know your thoughts on remaining open and accepting yes. while trying to also know who you are and be confident in that. I would yeah. also say to that that if someone disagrees with you, to not take it personally. I think we personalize all these things and then we become emotionally charged, yeah. right? Because we think somebody is judging us or they're trying to deconstruct the validity of our identity or something like that. When in truth, somebody has a different idea. So can you, it goes back to mindfulness too. Can you remain calm? Let's say you're in a conversation that starts to get heated because it's two opposing points of view. Yep. Can you remain calm? Can you remain objective? Can you receive what that person is saying without it pushing all your buttons and making you reactive? That's right. Can and you then, listen? And then, yeah, can you listen? Like we're, if anything right now, we're experiencing a poverty of our ability to listen, mm -hmm. right? And I think with the weaponization of social media and the heightened you know, um, emotional climate that we're in with coronavirus that's amplified by the social protests and the unrest that we're seeing, everybody is on edge. Everybody's shouting, there's not a lot of listening. And honestly, I fear for, the you know cohesion of our union unless mm. we can find a way to transcend this. And as far as I can tell, the only way to do it is through productive conversation. Mm. We have to be able to have grounded, mature, productive conversations. And we can't do that unless we're able to listen and unless we're able to receive somebody's point of view that may differ from our own and 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 really take that in mm -hmm. and and validate 
other people's points of view. Exactly. We need our 60-year-olds to be able to see a BLM sign and not freak out. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> 60, and listen, not you know, 16. If that 60-year-old has a problem with it, there are other avenues for him to voice, you know, exercise his First Amendment right. That's right. And I have no problem with him That's doing right. that. That's I right. may disagree with him, but can we move past the emotional aspect of this so that um, the conversation becomes more productive and puts us on a path towards repairing past damage and recreating you know, a better, more healthy union for everybody. Yeah, and being open-minded isn't necessarily a liberal thing or you know, being open-minded and being open. Um, often people on the far left are just as open-minded, are just yeah. as closed-minded as anybody else. This is not a else. partisan thing. No. Um, okay, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? From Philip Diddy. You have mentioned imposter syndrome a couple of times in past podcasts. I too suffer or struggle from that, despite some level of ability to be successful in endeavors that I feel an imposter in. I'm grateful for friends that mirror back to me my value to them. Certainly you have recognized that you have many fans and supporters and even guests that you have had an impact on. It's a paradox for sure. What exactly does imposter syndrome look for you? How do you face and overcome it enough to continue forward in your path? What would you tell someone trying to flip the switch toward a desire to serve humanity that is afraid of the next step due to imposter syndrome? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Cause I'm always saying that I suffer from imposter syndrome. <laughs> and I think I do to some extent. I had uh, this guy, Chris Evans came to my house who hosts um, the most popular morning radio show in the UK on Virgin, Virgin Radio UK. Yeah, right. It's like the breakfast show. Um, he's a fan of the podcast. What's up, Chris, if you're listening to, I love you. Um, and he's always giving the show shout outs on morning radio and like <laughs> London, which is awesome. Uh, but he, 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 he came to my house and we did, a, we did our own podcast for his show. And he's like, you're always saying you're an impo- you have imposter syndrome. He's like, you don't have imposter syndrome. He's like, you know what you're doing? I'm like, do I? I don't know. You know, like I have to be reminded. And I think it's like a slow boil thing. Like I, I, I do feel like I can own this space right now I've been doing this for seven years. I've interviewed 520 plus people. Um, I'm confident when I sit here that I know what I'm doing, that I'm gonna be able to get through an hour and a half and it's gonna be, you know, they're not all all gonna be amazing, but hopefully, you know, all of them have some value. So that's a story that I have to some extent transcended back to that other question. Um, I like to throw it around though every once in a while because, I, you know, I, it, it is well, like you were at well, I do point, have right? these pinch me moments yeah. where I'm like, what am I doing in Jack Dorsey's house right now? Like, right. how did this happen? You know, right. like, do I have any qualifications to talk to this guy? Like, <laughs> or some you know incredible athlete that I revere? You know, it's I think it's more of a, a a humility at this point, and you know, Chase Jarvis, photographer who I've had on the podcast, who has a lot of wisdom on the creative process says, you know, you hear that phrase like, fake it till you make it. He's like, make it till you make it. Just keep making it, you know, like inch your way forward. Like this podcast didn't start in this beautiful set. You know, you grow into these things over time. And with that, I think you slowly, as you develop some level of mastery over what you're doing, you're able to kind of transcend that idea of of being an imposter. I would say that I have a deep-seated insecurity in me that is, you know, I've spent a lifetime trying to 
unpack and overcome, but it crops his head up once in a while and tells me like, I have no business being here and somebody mm. else should be sitting here. And when are they gonna, when's the guy gonna walk in here and take away my, you know, like who, who told you you you're could out. have a podcast? You're done, <laughs> you're you know what out. I mean? Wait, wait but um, it's your podcast. Or who wants to hear what you have to say or your opinion on any of this? You the, know, real, that's, the real well, ritual is just down yeah, the, the hall. It, well, the imposter syndrome, definitely is creeping up around this new format because right. this is new, right? It's thought, like, yeah. there are political pundits who know a lot more about this stuff than I do. Let's let them do that. Mm-hmm. But I have to make it until I make it, right? Yeah. And the more I can do that, the less um, the less like held hostage I am by that insecurity and that sense that I am an imposter. So how do you drill that down into some kind of tangible advice for Philip? it really is make it till you make it, right? Like yeah. if you're feeling like you're an imposter, don't give that story power, like act as if, like act in contravention of Walk that. As like if. do, yeah, take in, 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 in A, there's a phrase, um, take contrary action. Mm-hmm. So just because your brain is telling you something doesn't mean that it's true, right? right? Your instinct, is broken often when it comes to things like this. So when you take the contrary, what would somebody who didn't have imposter syndrome do? Well, they would make another podcast or they would paint a painting or they would like get up on stage at the, at the comedy store or whatever it is, right? Get out of your comfort zone, make it till you make it and take the contrary action. I like it. Uh, to me, I'm thinking, don't believe everything you feel. And, uh, and, right. and uh, but I think the imposter syndrome, there is a positive to it. Not a not the syndrome, but there's a positive to the fact that you're not comfortable. Mm. There's something to be said for not getting comfortable um, and knowing that you have to show up and actually do the work. You can't mm. just turn on the mics and expect it to work. You can't just like show up and um, and put put take you know get a story done if you haven't done the research for the story. Yeah, yeah. It, it goes back to humility. Yeah. The 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 healthy second cousin of imposter syndrome is humility. That's it. Right. It's like. I like that. Rather than say, I don't deserve to be here, just say, look, I have a lot to learn. I'm still gonna show up, get out of my comfort zone and do this thing, but I appreciate that I'm just starting and I'm not gonna be perfect, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Like to have that courage to, to do it imperfectly, right? I, I, felt like, I felt like I was an imposter for the first seven years I was a journalist, you know, mm. and, and even, even 10, 13 years deep, I still wondered if I could do it. Right. And, and I've been doing it for 13 years. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Who's gonna take that little hat off your head with the press thing? And- <laughs> right, right. And now, but now I don't feel that way anymore. Mm-hmm. But I still, every time I have a new project to do, I still uh, wonder, can I do it? but not in a negative way. But you like have you, this muscle because you've right. done it so many times. Yeah. Like as a writer, when you're beginning that project, yeah. you're like, how am I ever gonna figure out how to do this? Like, it just seems hopeless, right? But yeah. you've been in that situation so many times that you're like, I know I feel this way right now, but I also know like I always figure it out. That's it. Right? It always ends up better. Yeah. And if you just do enough drafts, it'll get good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cool. Uh, a couple more. How do you handle conflict? This is from Allison Warner. How do you handle conflict? What advice do you have for respecting the other person while respecting yourself? What about facing and conquering the fear just before you begin speaking? Mm. So two questions. What advice do you have for respecting the other person while respecting yourself? 
start there. Respecting the other person while respecting yourself. I mean, that that goes a little, that, that dovetails a little bit with the open-minded versus stand your ground yep. uh, question, I think. I would say with respect to handling conflict, traditionally, I haven't done this well. Like this has been a huge learning curve for me and, um, and an instance in which the tools of sobriety have been very helpful to me. Mm. I am a notorious conflict averse person. I will do everything to avoid having to deal with conflict. And to this Same. day, I still duck out of every uncomfortable situation in which I'm gonna have to say something you know, that's mm -hmm. difficult. Um, so this is a battle that I've been waging with myself forever. And the hilarious thing is that I used to be a litigator, right? I, my job was to advocate in conflict. <laughs> You know, it's like probably the worst, <laughs> worst professional, you know, situation for me to be in. And I can remember Everyone like being in depositions a, a or, or like, you know, sitting in on deposition and just thinking like, can't you guys just get over this? Like, can't we just make this go away? Like, I was so uncomfortable with the fact that there were parties that were at odds with each other and I just wanted it to be over with. And to be an effective lawyer, you have to, th on some level, you have to thrive on conflict. You mm -hmm. have to kind of maybe not enjoy it, but certainly be comfortable with it, right? People, some people love it. And I just remember never feeling that way. And that was a big reason why I was like, I, I just, I can't continue to do this for a living, mm -hmm. at least as a litigator. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is like, this has been a huge like mountain to climb for myself. And I think, and, and part of that too, I should say, comes out of what I think is a somewhat laudable impulse or, or instinct, which is that I can always see the gray in everything. Mm. Like no matter what somebody's saying, I can always, I'm pretty empathetic. So I can always see somebody else's point of view. I think I'm pretty good at that. And I think that that has been a benefit to me as a podcast host, because to some extent I can, I, I really try hard to step into the shoes of the person that I'm talking to. Um, but I think- when, when you're able to see the gray and everything, it makes it more difficult to erect healthy boundaries mm -hmm. because you defer to the other person's perspective, mm. which is what I find myself doing. So for me, handling conflicts in a healthy way goes hand in hand with learning how to create healthy boundaries for yourself. And understanding what those boundaries are for you goes back again to the process of self-inquiry and really being clear on what your values are, like what is okay and what is not okay. And when somebody transgresses you, you know, crosses that boundary of what is okay, do you have the integrity and the self-esteem to voice that boundary to that person or erect that boundary or move away from that person, right? right? Um, when you don't have healthy self-esteem, you don't, you're, you're unable to do that, right? Mm. You'll let people steamroll over you because you don't feel like your point of view is valid or, or has merit, right? Self-esteem comes through performing esteemable acts. You have to do esteemable things to develop that self-esteem. The more self-esteem you have, the better position you're in to create that healthy boundary and to make it be known. And I think when, you're, when you are creating those boundaries or you have to give voice to them, it's also understanding that it's not a personal thing either. It's like, right. this is important to me and I need you to respect that. And if that person has a person that you're speaking to has a problem with that, that's more about that person than you. 
because it's only somebody with low self-esteem that that would be upset that that person is upset with your boundary. Right. You know what I mean? Well, right. These are not, the level, it's not like you either respect yourself or the other person. I mean, ideally you're doing both at the right. same time. Like right. We're juggling right. here. So you can like, you can respect yourself first. You can't really respect anybody else if you, if you don't respect yourself. But if somebody else doesn't respect a boundary that you've created, yeah. then they're not respecting you. Right. And if you allow them to do that, that's a reflection of your poor self-esteem because you you're not respecting yourself, I guess is what I'm saying. I think you've just terrified anybody who just gave a lawyer a retainer. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully the, the lawyer they gave the retainer to isn't someone like me. Hopefully you chose you I was chose still well. able to do my job relatively well. You did well. You masked yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I did have to mask it though. You were an imposter. Um, all right. This is a good one to close with. Um, how do you discern truth from fiction? This is from Tom L.A. Jones. One of the things I've found hardest in the last few weeks or months is how much false information there's been thrown around. I personally have felt like I've lost friends and teachers because they've become so engrossed in 5G, anti-vax, Gates, etc., conspiracy theories that it's tainted all the lessons I've received from them in the past, which I also pass on as a yoga teacher myself. My question to you, or invitation for a topic of conversation, is how to discern truth from non-truth, how to know who to listen to and trust, and why it even matters. Perhaps if I simply turned the news off and turned off my conspiracy theory pushing friends on social media, or just turned that off altogether, life would be simpler. This is a tough one. Life would be simpler, of course, but I don't know that it would be better. And to the extent that, that Tom is questioning whether or not truth matters, let me be very clear, truth matters. Truth matters more now than ever. If we can't agree upon what is true and what isn't true, how do we move forward as a society? And I think we're in a very precarious moment right now where truth is being questioned all over the place and the firm ground upon which we stand in terms of what is real and what isn't is becoming more and more difficult to discern. And it's deeply concerning to me. Um, truth is incredibly important. And I don't know how we got to this place where we have become so distrustful of vetted sources and so prone to believing things from dubious sources mm -hmm. um, that it's made conversation, back to this issue of conversation, very difficult, mm -hmm. right? Um, I don't know what else to say other than that it is incumbent upon Tom, myself, you, all of us to vet the sources of our information, to be more mindful and conscientious about our information silos and where we are receiving information from. We can be open-minded to go back to the other question, um, but we can't be, um, we can't allow ourselves to be susceptible to the level of manipulation that we're seeing right now. And I think that vetting your sources is important. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that perhaps the New York Times doesn't bend in a certain direction politically, but there is something to be said for the journalistic ethic and the standards of journalism that are required to produce 
stories for legitimate news outlets. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can receive those from different points along the political spectrum. But I think when you're reading blog posts and you don't know who wrote this or where this information came from, or you're just digesting clickbait headlines, it's problematic. So I don't know what else to say other than that you really need to vet your resource, your 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 sources, you know, completely. Whether it's podcasts, newspapers, television pro- programs, news programs, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and what about the when you see people you respect um, start to uh, trade in these conspiracy theories or unproven theories? Mm. Forget conspiracy, but just unproven theories. Um, Where does your mind go? Yeah, I mean, first of all, not all conspiracy theories are untrue. Right. Many of them are. So I don't want to, we're not going to debate, you know, which one of these are true or not right now, but um, there are conspiracies. I'm willing to say 5G is untrue. There are are some conspiracies (laughs) that, you know, it's like that that have validity. So I think when you're engaging with somebody like that, you could just say, tell me more about that. You know, mm-hmm. allow them to, you know, but you have to be convicted in your own sense of reality, mm-hmm. I think, to do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you don't have to engage those people. No. You don't, you don't have to get into an argument with them. You don't have to follow them on social media. It's not your obligation to prove them wrong. No. You have a choice about what you consume. So if this has become problematic for you, turn off the television and get off social media and go outdoors and enjoy your life and your family and your children. Life is short, man. So I don't know what else to say. No, I think I, I think what he's saying though, the, the one thing that is problematic with, you know, for a long time this has been building in this direction. There's a flattening of the media landscape where it used to th- you used to be able to tell really quickly what's a legitimate news source and what isn't just by mm-hmm. looking at it, feeling the newspaper or the magazine in your hands, and, and now you can tell which no one's amateur clear. hour. And now it's harder to see. So uh, there's flattening of that landscape. Now, for someone who works as a journalist, uh, I always will trust the journalists on the ground before I'll trust almost anybody just because they're there. Mm-hmm. And um, just like I would trust a doctor who's been through medical school or through, you know, when it's an acute situation, then I will some guy. Right. Um, but uh, there has been this desire, and it's not just in uh, in journalism, but there has been this movement to attack the expert. Uh, you're, right. You've, that's you know, new. That's new. And what you do is you love to bring in experts and probe experts and try to figure out what's going on so you, for the betterment of your listenership. Um, it's interesting that now the expert, um, whether it's a CDC guy or wh- you know whoever it is, you know whether it's Fauci or whoever. Now if you're an whoever, expert, you're the first person to be dismissed. Why should I trust you? you know? You're an expert. <laughs> 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 Right? You're an expert. Why should I trust you? It's very strange. It's a very bizarre, where everything is a little upside down right now. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason it's not, you know, that it matters is because now basically in a real way, um, our lives depend on it. You know, like we can't have some people, not we can, and we are. Some people are choosing not to believe in it, but the virus numbers will go up. So then I think one answer to to Tom is just like, 
you have to stay awake yourself and mm-hmm. realize that and make choices knowing that. You have to put yourself in charge, yeah. I think, and yeah. take responsibility for your information diet yeah. in a way that we didn't have we didn't used to have to. No. Right? No. But it is strange that now the first people we call into question are the experts. Yeah. Like how did we get it's to terrifying. this point? And again, it goes back to a breakdown in our ability to basically be on the same page about anything. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the process of evaluating your source material is is objectively trying to understand like the 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 motivations behind the piece, right? Mm-hmm. Like who stands to benefit from this? What is this person's point of view? Why are they advocating for this in this way? Like if you can read with a critical eye, I think that puts you already, you know, way ahead of the game. Yeah. But now everybody's so so because news narratives seem to shift so frequently, it's led to this level of distrust. And I think it creates um, a an amenability to conspiracy theories in order for the human brain to try to make sense of the of a of a world that that feels like it's in chaos. Because mm. if there's a grand unifying theory <laughs> to everything, then you can sleep at night thinking this makes sense. That's right. There's a, there's so many that you could go to. I mean, I, I for me with conspiracy theories, I always think of um, is it Occam's Razor? Or right. Yeah, Occam's yeah. Razor. Like uh, the simplest explanation is usually the one that's true. Um, so, uh, which kind of usually eviscerates uh, most conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. Um, but that uh, demands somebody's playing like eight dimensional chess. Right. Like yeah, like yeah. like it's usually not that. It's uh-huh. usually. Most things come down to human incompetence. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you that right yeah. now. <laughs> ask, Greta, ask, Greta <laughs> ask Greta for the callback. Ask, ask Greta. Yeah. She will tell you most things come down to human incompetence. <laughs> right. It's not evil, it's incompetence. Well, you've written for the New York Times yeah. and all kinds of, uh, you know, how dare you write for the New yeah. York Times, right? Yeah, how dare me. Um, you know, talk a little bit about that journalistic ethic and, mm. and what goes into that. Well, I mean, uh, there's a level of fact checking in, in, in major publications um, where you know you're gonna you're gonna have an editor or a research editor go back through and contact your sources to make mm-hmm. sure that these things happened, or you prove it with um, taped interviews or whatever where where it becomes clear. So there's a level of fact checking that go on with professional publications that don't go on for most web only articles. So mm-hmm. almost almost no. Um, but that's not necessarily always true. I also write for long reads, which is web only, and they do do the best pub, best fact checking I've ever had done. But there was a time when web only meant no fact checking, right. and print meant fact checking. Um, I will always trust a journalist on the ground. That doesn't mean journalists don't get things wrong. Um, I think someone wrote. I forget who it was. I wish I had this at my fingertips, um, or I could, or it would be good, entertaining to watch me Google it. But uh, you know, someone wrote, uh, "Journalism is the first draft of history." So, and Gladwell often Mm. says, Malcolm Gladwell often says, um, the later you are, the smarter you have to be, which is basically acknowledging that the first draft of history isn't always the most accurate, but it is a version. Mm. And it is the most accurate version at that time. That's what you're hoping to do. As a reporter, when I go into something, I've done many, many times, most of the stuff I've done has been reported before, just not by me. So then the- the, Yeah, you're not breaking news. No, I have, I've had the opportunity to do that too. Uh 
and it's uh, it's liberating because you know you don't have to you you just have to be smarter than nothing, <laughs> which is which is right. easy. But you still want to do a great job, right? Because you want to be you want to make it harder for anyone to follow you to find stuff you didn't find. Um, but uh, so I've done both, but uh, most of the time I do the latter. So uh, so in that case, you know ahead what's been done and you know where the holes are, and that your that's your role to fill it. But when you're doing it when you're when you're covering protests on the ground or whatever or a Trump rally mm -hmm. or something happening in the moment. There are deadlines that happen. You have to turn in your copy right away. There's someone working on it immediately. For the New York Times specifically, um, you turn something in, it's getting turned, especially if it's a breaking story, it's getting turned around right away within hours and it's up on the website before it's even in the paper. And it can be six hours or three hours after you've turned it in. And the pressure to be first to print yeah. is huge, right? Yeah. Which inevitably is gonna lead to errors in reporting. Yeah. And the whole the whole system is premised on an ad model, right? It's right. driven by clicks, so it's inherently problematic for that reason. But you it's know, nice but listen, to see some of these platforms moving to subscription model. I yeah. really think that's the future. Right? How are we going to get independent, you know, well reasoned, considered journalism? when it's about what is the title? You know, how are we gonna get this many people to click on this title and see these banner ads? You know, but the, it's important to say just because journalists make mistakes sometimes, they de are often the best place to interpret something because they're there, they're usually studying it often, especially with the New York Times, they're experts in a particular um, area or they've mm -hmm. been working on a specific desk for a period of time. So they, they have the most sources really. They're the ones talking to the most people about that very specific thing. Um, and we have this problem now where we don't have faith. We, cho we choose not to have faith unless we've seen it ourselves. It's like, it's like a reversal of some kind. Like, it's almost like the natural like, blowback from what it used to be. Like when I was growing up, we wanted to be iconoclast. We wanted to be, we wanted to go against the grain. I read the LA Weekly specifically because it was a different point of view. Alternative it was newspaper. an alternative point of view. But now everyone's looking for that alternative. And, and, and so it's no longer just the people on the edge of culture looking for that. Now it's everybody in culture looking mm -hmm. for that. Um, it's beyond just siloization, although that's part of what we're talking about. It's, it's, this, um, it's this doubt that is sewed into right. almost everything. Right. Like we doubt our doctors, we doubt the CDC guy, we doubt our journalists, we doubt, we doubt too much. Um, I used to be into being a rebel, but now we doubt too much. We're afraid to trust. Uh, there is a trust deficit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's incredibly yeah. destabilizing yeah. across the board for yeah. all of us when we're all doubting on that level and we can't agree upon some kind of shared ground. Yeah. I had David Katz on the podcast a while back. He wrote an op-ed for the New York Times um, at the very beginning of the pandemic about his perspective on COVID. And whether you agree with his perspective or not is irrelevant. What happened was it took, he told me it took 10 days of back and forth with the editors, fact-checking, changing this to make sure that everything was like fully vetted. And by the end of that 10, 10 day period, all the stats had changed again because this thing was, and they had to change it again. And like the elaborate, you know, amount of effort that went into just that simple op-ed that looks like you just write it and it goes up was way more than I think people realize, mm. like way more than meets the eye. Um, and it's stuff like that, that gives me, you know, that 
gives me confidence that when I pick up a legitimate publication like that, that I'm getting something different than I'm that, that I'm going to get from a blogger with an agenda, yeah. with no editorial oversight. Yeah, there you go. So I think that's it for today. That's good, man. Thanks for having me. How do you me. feel? I feel good. I mean, uh, it's always good to, to bat the tennis ball back and forth right. from a safe, safe social distance. I think, it's, I think we're making it till we make it. <laughs> Let's make it till we make <laughs> you it, You know man. what I mean? <laughs> right? Now we will go slip pink milkshakes and eat candy. <laughs> Let's go eat candy <laughs> right. and make some really important policy decisions. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, my friend, probably two weeks from now. Thank you for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks this for listening. This concludes this episode of Roll On Whatever We Decide to Title This. <laughs> Roll On Everything. Uh, if you enjoyed this, you can find Adam online at Adam Skolnick yep. on all the socials. You know where to find me. Uh, this is also up on YouTube if you want to watch us ping pong back and forth verbally. Um, what else? Uh, check out the show notes on the episode page. We're going to link up all the stuff that we talked about today so you can delve deeper into whatever piqued your interest. And uh, that's it. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show and making it look beautiful and all those clips that we share around on social media. Mm -hmm. uh, Georgia Whaley for copywriting, Allie Rogers for portraits, Jessica Miranda for graphics, and theme music by my boys, Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis, and DK sitting over there right now. DK for the important advertiser relationships. We'll see you back here in a couple days with another amazing episode. I appreciate all you guys taking this journey with me. Uh, allowing me and Adam and I to think out loud in real time and hope you guys enjoyed it. So peace, Lance. Namaste.